The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 till 11. To get started on the line, we've got Tom Rowe, who is the federal candidate, independent candidate for Corangamite. Tom, good morning. Thanks for being on the program. Morning, Mitchell. Great to be back on the program. Wow, what a week of incredible news from subs to Christian Porter to your good mate, Christina Keneally. Not that I'd ever bring her up, but anyway. (laughs) Roadmap to hell uh, for small business and most regrettably, our region back in lockdown. So surely this roadmap situation that we've got now, even though some people like the business lobby are saying it's too conservative, surely it's vastly preferable to decision-making hour by hour where we say, well, in two hours you're in lockdown. Yeah, sure, but uh, what a long-dated roadmap. Um, It's, in many respects, quite different to a more aggressive position out of New South Wales And I really greatly fear what happens once we get to 80% double dose because our Premier Dan Andrews has continued to talk about a great level of restriction leading beyond 80% double dose over our Christmas summer period. So that really concerns me. And I think as I've already expressed on your program, Mitchell, I'm pretty concerned about how we go from 70% double dose to 80%. I think that's going to be a bit of a struggle. And then beyond 80% double-dosed, uh, I think there are real problems in the, ex- the, the political narrative and the expectations of our community around that and further restrictions. Many other jurisdictions around the world, as we've discussed on this program, are now fully open. And Denmark is one of the more recent ones with levels of vaccination that are going to be similar to our targets, having already been reached, but now fully open. No more restrictions, I think, from the 10th of September. I think with this current lockdown, um, yes. I feel like we can at least rationalise it in some way because there's a cases on our doorstep in Geelong, whereas in previous lockdowns we've been locked down because there's been a case in Melbourne or some other part of regional Victoria. At least in this case, there are concerns about mystery cases in Geelong. Your thoughts? Well, there are, and and you touched on it a bit earlier um, in uh, as you opening up the program this morning, Mitchell, about movements in the construction industry. Now, as a lot of people will know, I'm heavily involved in the development sector, uh, obviously, therefore, construction. But I think there are differences between vertical going up, where you've got a much higher concentration of the workforce, and the horizontal, which is which which I'm more uh, involved in. Um, and I think we have really far less issue, hopefully almost no issue at all on the horizontal side, but the vertical is a problem. And so we have movement of construction workers, I think mainly from Geelong back to Melbourne and back here. And unfortunately, that's a conduit for mystery cases into the Geelong area. So yeah, look, there's a premise for why we should lock down rather than jumping at shadows. But the caseload here is still extremely low and hospitalisation even lower again. So there's a huge amount of conservatism built into the restrictions being put out by the state government. This has been a theme the whole way long and I really fear greatly we're being way too conservative. We've got to get focused on hospitalisations and health outcomes as distinct from cases. And I think the focus politically in the media is still very much on cases. And just to be clear, I wasn't just targeting the construction industry. I know there's been a clothing manufacturer that's had people at their headquarters from Melbourne coming down to work here and they've apparently brought the virus with them and the same with um, a supermarket. I think two supermarkets have had workers come down to work in that supermarket from metropolitan Melbourne. So it seems to be an issue right across all industries. 
Well, it does. Uh, and look, the construction industry has been picked on more recently. And there's some reasons and justification for that, particularly for high rise. And I think there's been a degree of arrogance, I think, on some of these high rise construction sites. But there has been a blanket ban of movement of construction workers between regional to metro and metro back to regional. And this is, is going to cause some issues um, across certainly our sector. So, um, it's just all part of this journey we've got to go through, Mitchell. So it's certainly not one industry specific. Um, and look, I've got some, you know, bluntly some friends coming into my area in the Bar and Heads Ocean Grove area from Melbourne. You know, it's beginning to break down. People are, are just resisting the controls and particularly with the holiday environment we have right now, there have been some movements of people back in here. I don't want to dob in on people, but you know full well that it's going on and, you know, it's very hard on communities down here that have done the right thing and are complying by the restrictions and obviously seeing people they know now moving in from Melbourne into the holiday destinations. Well, that's concerning because, again, we all pay the price. We cop it because now we're in lockdown and have all of these restrictions on us, even though we haven't, in theory, done anything wrong and haven't um, had any cases actually here ourselves. They've all come in from metropolitan Melbourne. Indeed. So... Um, Anyway, we've just got to get out this. Please, people, everyone out there, if you haven't been vaccinated, go out and do it. You know, I've had my AstraZeneca. There's Pfizer available. Um, there's lots of vaccine out there, and particularly in the AZ camp. Go out and do what's required if you otherwise haven't taken your first jab. Make now, this happen. Now, the submarine situation, I was more surprised that they didn't go with the nuclear subs to begin with because my understanding is that they got the design from France and they had to spend millions of dollars to alter the design to turn them into diesel subs. So presumably all of that uh, money that was spent on that's gone to waste and they've shelved that idea and are now going with nuclear subs. But I was surprised perhaps by some of the outrage around nuclear subs. I didn't sort of anticipate that. I sort of read that news article about we were getting nuclear subs and thought, well, yes, I mean, that's probably the way everyone else is going, but there's been quite a strong reaction from what I can see. Well, I don't know whether the reaction's been that adverse. I mean, I think it's been quite extraordinary that um, Labor has jumped on board so quickly. So whether we've got a full detail of the story behind the scenes, we'll probably never know. But what an absolute cluster disaster this has been the whole way through. And you and I discussed the issue of subs, I think, two years ago, particularly between nuclear and the, and the diesel electric subs that we had stepped into uh, through that Turnbull decision of 15-16. Um, um, but it is a disaster on so many fronts. Now, obviously, you've just mentioned we've just dusted, well, it's billions of dollars. We've spent about $2.4 billion on this disaster so, wow. so far. Uh, and we've probably got at least another $400 million of contract payout to the French. That's rounded up to $3 billion. Money's part of it, but we've also dusted two incredibly important relationships, both the Japanese in the first instance when Turnbull dumped what uh, Tony Abbott had pushed through, which was buying the Japanese, I think it's Soryu-class submarine. And the Japanese had even gone so far as to change some of their laws over there so they could export this sub and the technology associated with it to Australia. So they'd gone a long, long way to, down the, the path of making this happen. And they were very deeply offended by the decision in 15-16 by that new Turnbull government. But now, of course, we've dusted the French relationship as well. And even this morning, there was talk on the ABC about, we've got about 90 Australians in one of these towns deeply affected by the change of contract, where they're talking about hundreds of, of, of French people being put out of work as a result of this contract change. And they're even talking about these 90 Australians being fearful of their safety. 
over in France. But it's not just that. Obviously, there's the whole political narrative internationally at the moment between us, the French, the British and the Americans and uh, ambassadors being pulled out of both Australia and the United States. Some extraordinary action by the French. So they're having a right royal dummy spit at the moment and only the way the French most particularly can. So I don't think it's just about the subs. I think it's also about the AUKUS relationship that the British, Americans and we have stepped into and how the French think they've been excluded from that. But so we've got the dusting of the Japanese relationship, the dusting of the French relationship, $3 billion, and we still have no subs. As Peter Harcher said, I think, in the Australian, all we've got out of this is a plan for a plan because there still has been no declaration as to which technolo- real technology we're going to get. Are we going to get the astute class submarine nuclear sub out of out of Britain or is it going to be the Virginia class sub out of uh, America or is it going to be some sort of hybrid or something else just with a transfer of reactor technology? And now they're talking about getting these subs in 2040 based on this sort of construction timeline if we build them in Australia. It's just so unacceptable on so many fronts. The thing is, though, Mitchell, there are two or three people who have been constants over this entire period. One, of course, was Malcolm Turnbull, um, who's now gone. But you've got Scott Morrison, who was treasurer at the time and is now prime minister and therefore a member of the National Security Cabinet the whole way through, but also Maurice Payne. And I think a lot more focus has to be now put on Maurice Payne's conduct because as, a, as, as the Minister for Defence... When Turnbull made that decision in 1516 to go for the French sub, stop the Japanese, um, and then as a foreign minister, when this latest decision has been made, not to mention when she went on insiders and, and went out on a complete limb talking about some sort of global investigation into the release of COVID in Wuhan uh, and becoming a light, Australia becoming a lightning rod for uh, Chinese anger and resentment uh, and costing us arguably up to about $20 billion a year in export restrictions and coercion. Uh, I just think she's got a great deal to answer for and I, she seems to be a bit silent in so many respects despite holding these incredibly important positions and only yesterday on Insiders we had Simon Birmingham talking to these issues including on Christian Porter which we may come to rather than Maurice Payne. So I find it quite exceptional and extraordinary and I think she's got a great deal to answer for for this really this this cluster disaster of all uh, out of all proportion. Uh, it's, it is very concerning. Yeah, I was reading an article about that 20-year lead time on the first submarine and they sort of likened it to imagine if the UK or some other country in 1938 had announced a, a new weapon system but it wasn't going to come in until 1958 how that would work and how it would play out in uh, the situation that they found themselves in back then. I mean, it's just incredible, I think, that it can have such a long lead time. Well, it, look, absolutely. Now, there is a big difference between these two classes of submarine, a steward out of UK and, and the Virginia out of America. Um, and there are pluses and minuses for both. But going on to lead time, the astute class in the UK just incredibly is taking seems about 10 years or eight, eight to 10 years from laying down the, the base work to finally producing and commissioning a sub. The Virginia class in America, because they've got a great production um, run at the moment, they're taking about two and a half years to three years to complete from laying down to, to having the sub commissioned. And so I just can't, I just cannot go through my head how Scott Morrison and his people can get out there, completely dust the French contract, leave us with no subs whatsoever, but also no 
clear plan and, and how we're going to procure these subs. It just seems to be just this great brain fade and, and, and just a, a dump of, 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 of policy without any substance behind it, but also doing profound damage along the way. But the prospect that we're going to now have to wait until 2040 for our first new sub is just so unacceptable. Apparently we're going to refit our, our Collins-class subs um, through the next five to ten years. But that's leaving a sub that was developed and commissioned during the Hawke Prime Ministership. So it's just, mm. it's just, just totally unacceptable. So I really think if we, if the Americans are probably going to share their technology, it needs to be the Virginia class. We need to get onto their production timeline. And that's hopefully means us getting a nuclear sub uh, by 2030, if we can hook into their production timeline uh, um, and um, and then begin to migrate some of the production back into uh, into Australia. It seems it has to be in Adelaide. It's always Adelaide. I don't know why other parts of Australia can't get part of this. Uh, this core production, uh, you will have some subcontracting around the places. But you know, where is Geelong and developing a maritime defence industry in Geelong? Nowhere to be seen. It's always about votes in Adelaide. Christian Porter, um, he resigned <coughs> yesterday and put up a bit of a statement on his social media defending his innocence. I'm just wondering, do you think he can come back? Because a number of these people that have seen resign from the cabinet have uh, gone and spent their time on the sidelines and then come back one or two years later. He says he wants to recontest the electorate of Pierce again the next time around. So can he return to the cabinet at some stage? Uh, time does heal, but there's just so many black clouds around Christian Porter. And look, maybe some of it's extremely unfair. His allegations completely unproven, of course. But boy, there are some dark clouds in this personal conduct that sort of ties back into some of the historical allegations as well. And then you see his decision around this blind trust and not acting a whole lot quicker. And for that matter, Scott Morrison not acting a whole lot quicker and constantly this government in some respects has dragged kicking and screaming to a point where they finally act. It's all too little too late. So look, um, a poor pathway to this final outcome, but look, anything is possible, I think, in politics, but it's really hard for Christian, I think, uh, and maybe it's very, very unfair. I always had high regard for Christian before perhaps I knew a bit more about him. And again, I want to stress it's all allegation, but I think he has, he did have on the, on the face of it some really good qualities about him. I really thought he could have been actually a future prime minister at one stage. You know, I think that's a, you know, it's, it's a hard ask at the moment. Um, but I just think he's, this is poor show and a blind trust sort of, but which he can direct or people around him can direct to do things for his personal benefit and paying legal fees and an unpreparedness to disclose where this money comes from. It really is such a bad look. So I think it's tough for him to come back. And I wouldn't normally bring it up, but since you raised it, Christina Keneally? Oh, gosh. I mean, there are a truckload of problems on the Liberal side, um, which is the side that I'm, you know, mainly associated with, of course, but in Labor, it just goes on and on and on. And to dump on this Australian and Vietnamese heritage uh, to kick her out of this safe federal seat and Fowler, uh, this young lady called uh, Tu Lee, um, uh, and to put in Christina Keneally, uh, ram her through in a seat that I think is 40 kilometres away from her generally permanent place of residence um, um, up at near Pittwater is just so, so bad. It just reeks of, uh, of political populism and opportunism. 
Uh, and uh, I just think is a shocking look. And I think even uh, last night and this morning, they're saying Christina Keneally, despite always wanting to be on the media um, uh, news front, taking every opportunity to be out there. And she started defending her position just over a week ago, but apparently for the last week, it's just gone completely quiet. I think there's an overwhelming a wave of frustration and resistance to what's gone on there, ramming her into Fowler. Um, and she had it coming, and so does the party have it coming as well. Such a bad look. There'll, so There'll be a lot of anger um, now, but, I mean, it'll pass. Uh, she'll get elected into that seat, no problems, I would have thought, and life goes on. Well, I think for so many safe Labor seats, and one can argue in our own sort of local experience with Richard Miles, these people can do nothing and find themselves in these seats and just constantly get re-elected and there's no pressure. And we can see in contrast to a seat like Karangamite, where it becomes marginal and how much money gets thrown out to try to buy votes. So I think poor old Labor voters get dudded time and time again. I'm not saying the Liberal National Party side is, is so pure in this either. But Labor just get Labor voters just get shafted the whole time. Uh, it's such a bad look, and it's poor outcomes for their community. So yeah, look, she'll get through. She'll get re-elected. She'll get elected. Uh, maintain a, a very solid majority in there, and it gives her a springboard into her other, you know, political aspirations and ultimately leadership. We'll have to wait and see on that front. Um, but I just don't think Fowler and its people and community are, are, are well served, uh, and it's a terrible message. Uh, I think, to uh, younger aspiring politicians who serve their communities really well and would make great politicians. Well, thanks so much for being on the program. It's always good to catch up and uh, we'll talk to you again next month and we'll say this every time, but hopefully lockdown free. All right, indeed, Mitchell's very much uh, hope lockdown free. Let's wait and see. Good on you. Thank you very much, Tom Rowe there, running as an independent candidate for the seat of Karangamite. The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 to 11. Or search for Mitchell's Front Page on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you get your podcasts.